You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda, a senior editor at The Diplomat. And today, I'm happy to be joined by Greg Poling, who is a director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at the Center for Strategic International Studies in Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining me, Greg. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's been overdue to have you on the podcast. A lot of our listeners probably know that we talk about um, AMTI's work quite often, both in the writing that we do at The Diplomat, uh, especially Prashant, who's my normal co-host, and I. Uh, when we write about the South China Sea, we definitely turn to the work that you guys do. It's really been um, great to watch AMTI grow. Actually, before we get into today's discussion, do you want to just tell us a bit about the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative and what you guys tried to do? Uh, yeah, I don't mind tooting our horn a little bit. Um, so the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative was set up here at, at CSIS uh, going on three years ago now. And the idea was to uh, make a clearinghouse for data, both on what's happening on the ground or, or on the, the waters, if you, if you will, and what's being claimed in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and really all of, all of Asia's maritime disputes. So admittedly, the South China Sea sucks uh, most of our time. But, uh, you know, the idea was to explain a set of very complex issues that are often misunderstood by policymakers and experts in whatever ways we could think of. That includes the satellite imagery that I think has really made our name, along with, you know, online mapping and our own podcasts and video and graphics. Anything that doesn't require a 6,000 word treatise that no policymaker is going to read. Absolutely. And I think um, and I think it's a testament to the work you guys do that you're cited so widely in um, so many news reports on the South China Sea. So. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, your your imagery, I think, is really definitely very well known. Uh, You kind of see it all over the place. It's uh, syndicated and run all the time. Um, But anyways, Greg, um, I'm really glad to have you on since, um, you know, Prashant and I, we talk about the South China Sea off and on on this podcast. Last year, we used to talk about it quite a bit more in the lead up to the ruling. And we actually did a podcast just a few weeks ago, reflecting on what the ruling meant um, a year on. And naturally, we weren't too optimistic. Um, But, you know, we'd also been talking about how um, it's been deceptively quiet and calm in the South China Sea. And, and, you know, I think we were talking about that maybe early in June. And a few things in recent weeks and months have made it clear that that was in fact, correct. Um, first, we had this incident with Vietnam and the disputed oil blocks with um, the uh, the Chinese coming in there, and then now the issue that I really want to dig into you with um, I dig into you with you today is uh, what's going on near Thetu Island in the Philippines, um, which I wrote about briefly at the Diplomat, and um, you've been um, on top of this too with the imagery. So um, why don't I actually let you kind of walk us through the series of events as we know them publicly? I mean, probably the best place to start might be with what um, Philippine Congressman uh, Gary Aliano uh, first alleged, and then we can maybe revisit um, some of the other issues that might have come up. So do you want to tell us a bit about what those allegations were and what you were able to uncover in the open source? Sure. So this uh, broke in the Philippine press on, I think it was August 13th, where Congressman Alejandro released some photographs uh, and maps that he had said came from unnamed sources within the armed forces of the Philippines. They had passed them on to him, uh, showing the sudden presence of uh, a bunch of Chinese fishing ships, along with at least a couple of PLA Navy and, and one or two Coast Guard ships, within one to three nautical miles of Pagasa, or Thetu Island, uh, which is the main civilian base for the Philippines and the Spratlys. They've got uh, a little over 100 civilians living there year-round. It's also within sight of, of the Chinese base at Subi, um, just over 12 miles. 
So uh, Alejandro had alleged that the ships started trickling in, the fishing ships first, around the 11th. By the 13th, they had had the full number. By the 15th, I believe it was on the 15th, they, they said that uh, they had overflown a couple of the sandbars that are situated between Subi and D2 with their helicopters uh, from one of the PLA ships. And this all led Alejandro to make a claim that is still unconfirmable, that uh, this indicated the Chinese were preparing to, it, he said invade, but you know, build on one of these unoccupied uh, sand caves. Right, and it's important that they're unoccupied. Um, right? right, right. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, his his claim was again backed up by uh, Justice Carpio, who I think uh, compared this to what had happened at Scarborough Shoal in 2012, um, and obviously... Um, you know, a few analysts had talked about the significance of Sandy K in particular um, a few weeks, um, I guess, a few months ago and last year. Um, actually, I think as early as October 2015, after the license freedom of navigation operation, people started talking about that. Do you want to tell us a bit about the legal importance, potentially, of some of these unoccupied sandbars for China? Yeah, nobody knew that these sandbars were there until 2015, I guess, with the Lassen passage. I mean, that's that's not fair. People knew. It was not a member matter of public record. In fact, uh, Sandy K was not named Sandy K until 2015. It was just a Sandy K, one of many. Mm-hmm. Now all of a sudden you see it with capital S, capital C, because it's so important to the legal status of Subi. You know, Subi is the second largest of the Chinese artificial islands out there, and like Mischief Reef, which is the biggest one, it was completely underwater at high tide before the Chinese started building. It's and what, and why does that matter? I'm just uh, I'm just going to ask you to just clarify that for our listeners. Yeah, so that matters because if a feature is below water at high tide, it doesn't create its own territorial sea, much less any other maritime entitlements. Uh, the only way you can claim uh, a low tide elevation like Subi Reef, meaning that it does some of it pops up uh, at low tide, but it's completely submerged. The only way you can claim that is if it sits within the territorial sea of another island or reef. Um, and that would be Sandy K. It is within 12 nautical miles of this, at the time, unnamed Sand K, which means that whoever is the rightful owner of that, that unoccupied K, whether it's China, the Philippines, or Vietnam, uh, is also, by extension, the rightful owner of Subi Reef. And further, that Subi Reef, as a low tide elevation, basically a fringing reef of that Sand K, it would bump out that K's territorial sea. So instead of Sandy K getting about a 12 nautical mile territorial sea, it gets something closer to 20 miles because right. it gets bumped out again by Subi Reef, which I think is about eight miles away. Right, and the and last year's arbitral tribunal ruling acknowledged that Subi Reef was a low tide elevation. It acknowledged that Sandy K was not a low tide elevation. It acknowledged that it would be what we call, I guess, a rock. Um, but you know what, what I thought was interesting, I went back to the ruling after all of these, um, after this incident, and I looked at the status of Sandy K. It was interesting that the Philippines lawyers actually were arguing that Sandy K never existed, which I thought was interesting. Um, I mean, maybe just given this uh, ambiguity, because the court didn't concern, um, well, didn't have jurisdiction to address any issues of actual uh, sovereignty. Uh, so what was the deal with that? Do you know what the Philippines thinking was here about Sandy K before 2015? Well, the argument from the Philippine side is understandable. If Sandy K was below high tide, below water high tide before, then Subi Reef is illegally occupied. Right. Not just that it, it doesn't have any territorial sea of its own, but that it is in fact a piece of the seabed that, that China has no right to occupy. Right. Um, because it's, you have to remember that uh, the court ruled that none of the rocks 
in in the Spratly Islands generates a territorial uh, an exclusive economic zone or kind of shelf, and that means that the only claims out there are going to be within 12 miles of the rocks. Right. C2 Island is just outside of 12 miles from Subi. So mm-hmm. Subi is a piece of international seabed on less sandy K as a rock. And um, is Subi on the Philippines continental shelf? No. No, That's... Subi is uh, – well, Subi is not on a continental shelf the Philippines currently claims. It okay. is not within 200 miles of the Philippine mainland. Now, that's not to say that the Philippines couldn't put in an extended continental shelf claim at some point in the future, but they haven't done so. Right, right. Um, okay, so let's uh, so let's go back to these um, events that we were discussing, uh, the allegations from Congressman Galliano. Um, so your imagery was able to substantiate most of what he said. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah. We can we can substantiate the facts in the water. As far as the uh, implied motivations on China's part, we we can't. So we had imagery from the 13th that confirmed at least nine Chinese fishing ships mm-hmm. were arranged between uh, one and five miles of C2, along with uh, what looked like one Coast Guard ship and one Navy ship. Now, there might have been more under cover of the clouds or just out of the, the frame. Who knows? Um, but certainly we were able to confirm most of what he said. We could also tell that at least two of those fishing ships had nets in the water, so they for whatever reason they originally showed up they were fishing while they were there right right um okay so let's talk a bit about uh you know our favorite character in the philippines president rodrigo duterte who had um it took him a while to publicly address this um after the allegations were circulating reports had been already written up in a variety of outlets um and then finally he responds and he had sort of a strange um non-committal non-concerned reaction to the whole affair um, sort of conceding the premise that this was an aggravating action since he implied that he wouldn't be willing to risk the lives of the Philippine Armed Forces in a, a naval confrontation with China. And obviously, uh, if our listeners have been listening to the podcast before, they know that Duterte has been um, on, he's been launched this uh, overall realignment of the Philippines foreign policy since the Aquino administration, getting a lot closer to China, um, having a few kind of rocky moments with the United States uh, that appears to have maybe changed this year, uh, but they're still... Um, a vein of anti-Americanism there. So uh, what did you make of Duterte's reaction to this? I mean, he he really didn't see this as a potential quote-unquote invasion, as uh, some people said. Um, it, it really, I mean, almost appeared as if he had been notified um, by the Chinese side that, that, you know, something was coming. We've seen this uh, from Duterte before, whether it was with the presence of Chinese survey ships on Benham Rise on the other side of the Philippines or uh, you know, disputes over Scarborough Shoal. Duterte does not feel that the South China Sea is of critical importance to Philippine national interests in the same way that most Filipinos do. Um, he's also he's often dismissive of, of the importance here. He, you know, he's called Scarborough Shoal a fish pond in the past. He's also very defeatist. So you know, he constantly says, what do you want me to do about it? Uh, if I complain at all, the Chinese said they'll go to war and we'll lose that war. And this is basically what he said here, right? I'm not going right. – I think the exact quote was something like, I'm not going to go to war over sand, over a bunch of sandbanks. We'll be slaughtered. Um, all of that is is par for the course for Rodrigo Duterte. Uh, I mean it's also fair to say that uh, the claims that this was an invasion were obviously overblown. Um, there's no evidence the Chinese stepped foot on any of these sand caves. They didn't use any violence. Uh, all of these waters are – claimed as territorial seas by both China and the Philippines. They are legally in dispute as far as everybody else is concerned. 
it was undoubtedly a provocative act, and we should be concerned about this kind of saber rattling, but it wasn't an invasion of, of Philippine territory as far as the international community is concerned. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Duterte did say one thing that I think needs to get a lot more attention uh, and that I sincerely hope he walks back. He said when asked uh, about the U.S. mutual defense treaty that even if the Chinese did attack Filipinos, he would not – he would never call in the Americans because, quote, I've lost trust in the Americans. Right, right. Now, Duterte has always been skeptical of American uh, treaty commitments to the Philippines. On the campaign trail and since being elected, he has repeatedly said the Americans aren't really going to fight for us. So that's fine. If that is Duterte's belief, okay, that should color his decision-making. But the idea that you would say publicly on camera that even if the Chinese were to attack us, we would still never invoke the Mutual Defense Treaty, that's a little crazy. That's signaling to Beijing that there is absolutely no chance that he would ever try to call on the Americans as a deterrent. Uh, which takes the only bit of leverage the Filipinos have off the table. Right, and could lead to serious miscalculation if he ends, he actually ends up invoking the treaty anyways and the Chinese decide to come in before that. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, let's talk a bit about the relationship that Duterte has with the United States today. Um, his comments to uh, Tillerson got some attention when he called himself the United States' humble friend. I think a lot of people took that to mean that Maybe he was letting bygones with Obama be bygones now, and under Trump, things would be a lot better. Um, But obviously, um, you know, we have also seen reports that uh, the Philippines is potentially maybe for the umpteenth time considering allowing United States forces to use direct military force in the Marawi siege. Um, And yet we have these comments again over the South China Sea. I mean, where where do you think things will really shake out with Duterte and the United States? I mean, a little more than a year on into his presidency. I think we'll continue to tread water. Uh, Duterte is ideologically anti-American. That's not going to change. It doesn't matter how positive meetings are with U.S. cabinet officials. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. Yeah. Um, you know, we've seen this before. He had pretty positive meetings in Manila with then Secretary of State John Kerry, and as soon as Kerry boarded the plane, he started laughing to the press about how poorly he was treating the Americans. And again, we see good meetings with Tillerson, and then he's in the press a week later bashing the Americans, saying that they're untrustworthy. Yeah. So this is this is pretty normal. Um, that said, he also knows that he is wildly out of sync with his own defense establishment, with the armed forces, and with public opinion. So time and time again, whether it's the South China Sea or Marawi, cancellation of EDCA, all of these things, he says, and then he bumps up against kind of the invisible walls of what's acceptable politically in the Philippines, and he walks back. Right. I so, think we're going to continue to see that. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought up public opinion. Um, that was one of the things that last year, uh, again, we discussed shortly after Duterte's um, inauguration in the context of the South China Sea. It's this question that, uh, you know, Filipino national sentiment around the South China Sea clearly disagrees with Duterte about um, both the importance of the South China Sea as an issue to the Philippines' national interest and national dignity, um, but just more broadly about, you know, this whole idea that China can be allowed to uh, simply saber rattle at will. Um, conduct um, all sorts of naval and coast guard operations in indisputed waters with the Philippines. Uh, do you think that this is starting to, you know, a year on, do you think the public opinion issue is starting to become more of a problem for Duterte on the South China Sea that if he kind of keeps up this defeatist attitude, it'll eventually come back to bite him? I think that it is, um, it's very worrying if his popularity suffers in other ways. So like 
any democratic society, um, it's pretty hard to make foreign policy a top issue for voters. Right. Uh, you know, the day Duterte was elected, the people that elected him knew that they disagree with him on foreign policy. That it wasn't his positions on things like South China Sea weren't a secret. They did it anyway because he was the law and order guy and the anti-corruption guy and the outsider. And all of that is still true, and all of that bolsters his popularity. But if for other reasons, whether it's an economic slowdown or you know negative backlash from the drug killings or his tax policy, if any of that undermines his popularity substantially, then issues like the South China Sea could be the noose that eventually hangs him. I mean, we saw something similar with Gloria Arroyo where all of a sudden the, the allegation of crony capitalism with the, the Chinese and things like the Joint Marine Seismic Undertaking, they came back and were used as further ammunition for why she was unfit for office. Right. Um, and I, I think you would see the same thing here. As long as Duterte is at 80 to 90 percent approval, uh, people will disagree with him, but they're not going to throw him out of office over South China Sea. But if you know he loses his public sin and his congressional allies turn on him, this is exactly the kind of thing that can force him out of office. Right. And we're almost um, 10 months on from Duterte's um, landmark visit to China um, when he kind of came back with a range of agreements that were implemented to varying degrees. How do you assess uh, you know, the state of the relationship between Manila and Beijing? Do you think this um, do you think people have been making too much of this realignment that's been going on, supposedly? Or um, or is there a degree of sincerity to this uh, that China is um, beginning to pluck the Philippines away from the United States orbit with uh, with a Duterte at the helm, even if Philippine public opinion continues to be overwhelmingly um, pro-American. There's something to this. It's just not nearly as much as the press makes out. Okay. Uh, this is a tactical shift in Beijing. Uh, they are certainly – they've softened the diplomatic rhetoric. They are making promises of economic largesse, etc., Duterte believes it. It doesn't seem that the rest of the government does. Um, the Philippine people are willing to give it a chance. Uh, but there is a big difference between promising economic largesse and actually delivering. We haven't seen any of the delivery yet. Right. And more importantly, there's a difference between speaking softly on the South China Sea and actually changing your strategic intentions. And things like what we just saw at D2, or as you said at the beginning of the podcast, the harassment of, of the Vietnamese efforts to drill for oil and gas – those show that China hasn't actually changed any of its strategic intentions. The goal is still complete control over the water, seabed, and airspace of the nine-dash line, and they'll do it by force or by you know mercantilist buying off if they have to. Um, but either way, they have every intention of making it theirs. Yeah, um, and I guess uh, Greg, like we'll um, we'll close this podcast out. But before we do so, I wanted to get your thoughts on the draft frame, um, the framework for the code of conduct in the South China Sea, which was recently adopted by ASEAN and China. Um, I know uh, you and I have talked about this a little bit on Twitter before, but do you want to tell the listeners what you think of this this whole affair going on between ASEAN and China? Uh, I think that this was a brilliant tactical move by the Chinese and a remarkable blunder on the part of ASEAN. Uh, the, they spent the last year negotiating an outline for a non-binding agreement they already agreed to 15 years ago, which seems an awfully big waste of time to me. The, the document, the actual framework, which is now – it was not publicly released, but it's been leaked everywhere. Uh, it doesn't specify anything about how you would actually – calm the situation in the South China Sea. It just says some some kind of vague niceties, sets out some principles of cooperation. It doesn't establish that it's going to be legally binding. It doesn't establish where it would even apply. And it, its only value is if it actually leads to an immediate start to real negotiations on a code of conduct. But 
as soon as it was released, we had Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, come out and say, uh, we will maybe start negotiations if we decide the time is ripe, which is the same thing that China's been saying since they signed the Declaration of Conduct in 2002. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, hey, uh, Greg, this was fun. Um, thanks for coming on the podcast to finally, I guess, geek out a little bit with me over the South China Sea, and um, I'll, I'll hope to have you back on soon. Yeah, look forward to it. Absolutely. Thanks, and take care. For our listeners... Thanks for listening to the podcast, as always. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. We'd love to have you on board for future shows. And if you are a subscriber but you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. We'll be back uh, next week with more on Asian geopolitics. Thanks a lot for listening.